This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Before the pandemic, many of us didn't give that much thought to the quality of air indoors. But COVID-19 has changed that. We've got air purifiers, we've got CO2 detectors. On today's show, we'll explore why some health experts think it's time to change how we think about indoor air. Plus, we get a look at new restrictions on overcrowded camping areas. And we hear about an effort to recognize bridges as historic properties. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. A portion of Interstate 70 in Denver is now reopened with a new temporary lane configuration after being shut down this past weekend. That closure set the stage for the mile-high shift to get underway. That's what the Colorado Department of Transportation, or CDOT, has dubbed the massive infrastructure project that will divert traffic off of the old crumbling sections of I-70 in northeast Denver to a new underground highway that's been under construction for years. The 57-year-old structurally insufficient viaduct will be demolished over the next few months. It's a significant moment for Colorado's infrastructure future. With that in mind, KUNC's Ray Solomon took a look into our infrastructure past with CDOT historian Lisa Schock, who's hoping to reframe some of our older bridges as unique historic properties worthy of preservation. We are at Boulder Creek and State Highway 119 at milepost 39.10 at the Boulder Creek Bridge which was built in 1953. It's a concrete deck girder. Lisa Schock is a senior CDOT historian on a mission to boost appreciation for Colorado's historic bridges. We're underneath that bridge on a path that follows the winding Boulder Creek. This one has really cool curved girders. It frames the the creek nicely. And then up above, there's a a steel rail, the original steel rail, and then what looks like Uh, a safety rail that was placed on the inside. Construction work on the roadway is stalling out traffic on the bridge deck above us, but down below it's all rushing water and the occasional cyclist. From above you can't really you can't really see how really pretty this bridge is when you're driving and you can just see the deck. Um, If you're down below it it really does frame the creek very nicely. Shock describes herself as a bridge junkie as well as a historian, but she says Colorado's bridges don't tend to have a devoted fan base. Colorado has um, I would say it doesn't have terribly interesting bridge stock, but a lot of our bridges are very functional and they don't look very spectacular, but they look great in their setting. And when I was putting together the nomination for most endangered places, I looked at the bridges, the 46 bridges that we nominated and was more struck by how they were placed in the landscape. Colorado Preservation Inc. issues the most endangered places list every year. It highlights the state's historic properties most in need of protection. This year, historic bridges made that list. You know, there are a lot of really interesting bridges up until World War II. You have steel through truss bridges and a lot of interesting, actually concrete designs like Luton arches um, that have a lot of architectural character to them. And I think what happened in the post-war period is, you know, there was more use of reinforced concrete and more out-of-the-box designs. And, and we, we just weren't thinking about bridges the way we used to. But I don't want to say that, that no one's interested in bridges in Colorado. I just think that if you go to a historic preservation conference, most of it's about the things that you would expect, you know, architectural, um, historic districts. And so thinking about functional transportation features as historic properties is, 
still may be a little hard for people to wrap their heads around. Spectacular or not, Shock makes the case that historic bridges are worth preserving because they're part of our state's cultural heritage. Transportation is a huge part of state and local history. When you think about the construction of the interstate in I-70 and how that transformed Colorado, you think about Eisenhower Tunnel, it has so much to do with how communities develop and and people's ability to, you know, to move around and settle. And I think that Colorado has one of the most unique transportation systems just because of the mountain engineering. When you're talking about, you know, a tunnel being built at 11,000 feet, we have the highest point on the interstate system. We have a lot of interesting um, transportation features and, and the bridges are a huge part of that. Of course, not all things historic can be preserved. I'm gonna ask you about the Gunnison River Bridge. CDOT recently announced that you are putting that bridge up for adoption. Can you explain what that means? So there's uh, certain bridge types that can be disassembled and reassembled and repurposed. So most of these are gonna be steel through truss bridges um, and or steel pony truss bridges that can be dismantled, moved, reassembled. Most of the time we do um, an archival documentation with photos or we'll do an interpretive sign. But for these bridges that are designed to be moved and repurposed, we advertise them for adoption. And it sounds quaint. We haven't had a lot of success with the program. The Gunnison River Bridge in Delta was built in 1938. It's a three-span pony truss. And it, we looked really hard at rehabilitation, determined we needed to replace it. There's three spans, and there's three of those kind of curved steel trusses. Right now, um, it looks like Montrose County is going to adopt one of those trusses and repurpose it as a vehicular bridge in the future. And so we have two trusses left. And we're really hoping that there might be some interest that you could use it as a pedestrian bridge. The deal is, if you take it, you have to pay for the relocation in most cases. And you also um, have to kind of rebuild the bridge. That kind of investment can make historic bridge adoption a tough sell. You can buy a prefabricated um, pedestrian bridge and stick it in for a lot cheaper than trying to rehab a historic bridge. On the other hand, having a historic bridge on your trail is pretty cool and there's a way to interpret it and make it more interesting for people. So we're hopeful um, that we'll find some a good home for these other trusses and they'll be repurposed. And if no one steps up to adopt? If no one steps up to adopt then they get, they get scrapped. They're salvaged for, you know, for scrap. The Boulder Creek Bridge, where we're standing, is made of concrete. You can't just take it apart and move it somewhere else. It's one of the bridges CDOT wants to preserve in place, which means they'll maintain it and keep using it where it is. You'll find it on that list of Colorado's most endangered places. So I'm looking at the bridge. I'm seeing a lot of, like, cracked concrete, falling. What is that, that white stuff that comes up yeah, on the surface? Might be some drainage. Um, you know, some drainage issues. But yeah, this is obviously, the piers have been patched, I think. But it's, it's, it's actually in pretty good engineering shape. Most endangered places. That gives me the idea that something is uh, at risk of falling apart or crumbling or being lost to time. You were just telling me that this bridge isn't actually slated to get any work. Can you sort of square that for me? These bridges are actually in really good shape. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be on our high priority list. And so I think the most endangered part is that we're trying to raise that awareness and to also sort of recognize that as an agency, we have been replacing them. But I would hope that there'd be some way that we could, you know, move on, improve the infrastructure, but still preserve the connections that are significant. Um, because 
you know, some of these bridges that we've replaced over the years, those types are never going to be built again. CDOT's not going to be like, all right, let's let's do a through truss for, you know, State Highway 119. Not going to happen. So we're losing, we're losing bridge types um, over time, and, and they won't ever come back. So you said that not too many people love bridges in Colorado, but you're one of the few. You know, there's something about being, you know, just driving over this bridge today and then you and I are standing here right and it's it's different it's a different feel um, it has a presence uh, and I found that when I walk on old bridges and I've done this a lot with my kids this is it transports you back in time it's a completely different feeling. Shock hopes that if she can amp up interest in historic bridges that could whet public appetite for more thoughtful design in the projects we're tackling now. So what I'm trying to do is get get CDOT to think a little bit differently about what we're what we're building for the future. And I think a really good example of that is the Grand Avenue Bridge in Glenwood Springs. It's a it's just beautiful. It it uses stone finishes. It's it's on a curve. It has a beautiful plaza underneath. Now obviously that's a big project. There was multiple uh, funding sources, not just CDOT. There was a lot of community interest in what was going to go in to that space. But you look at that bridge and you know it's going to be historic in the future. Ray Solomon, KUNC. When we talk about air quality, we're usually talking about the air outside, whether it's affected by wildfires, smog, or factory emissions. Those conversations typically end at the front door. But the COVID-19 pandemic has many of us thinking about indoor air in a whole new way. Maggie Mullen has more on that. At the daycare at the University of Wyoming, you see a lot of what you'd expect. Toys, books, cubbies for tiny shoes. And that's not all. We've got air purifiers. We've got CO2 detectors. That's Mark Bittner. He's in charge of this place. He says those machines were added to reduce the risk of catching COVID-19. I just really needed to find a way to help mitigate, okay, what can we do now that we know these things are airborne? um, We have kids that some of them are are too young to wear masks, so what can we do to help protect um, the children, help protect the staff that are here a little bit better? The daycare's HVAC system got a boost to recirculate air more frequently, and each classroom now has an air purifier. And then there's the CO2 device. It's not measuring COVID in the air, it's just measuring CO2 levels. Here's why that's useful. CO2 is what we breathe out. So if there's a lot of it in a room, the air isn't fresh. You're more likely to breathe in the same air someone else just breathed out. But if the CO2 detector shows numbers on the higher end, Bittner says it's still not as if an alarm goes off. It's not a panic. It's just find ways to move the air a little bit better. Like opening a window or turning on a fan. These kinds of mitigation efforts happened all over the country as people were thinking hard about indoor air, many for the very first time. As a result, most of us in this field have been working nonstop. That's Shelley Miller, a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. To try to communicate, provide interviews, write articles, put stuff on Twitter, just like any way we can possibly get the word out. Get the word out about indoor air quality. Miller says historically, people have paid way more attention to the air outside. But even that started not so long ago. We only realized in the 1950s that air pollution could kill you because of the London outbreak. 
She's talking about the Great Smog of 1952. It was five days of disastrous air pollution, thanks to unusually frigid and windless weather combined with pollution from burning coal. The sky and the light were blotted out, and London coughed and crawled almost to a standstill in murky yellow gloom. The Great Smog shut down the city and caused thousands of deaths, and it spurred the UK's Clean Air Act of 1956. People realized that if we want clean air, the government needs to regulate that. And just as importantly, Miller says it gave way to thinking about outdoor air as a public good, something that we all share. But she says we haven't come around to that kind of thinking for indoor air. What's happened with indoor air is that it's become a private good. This is your home. This is your space. Um, The government is not going to invade your space or your home or your office building. But better air quality at home can keep you healthy in a number of ways, filtering allergens, dust, as well as pathogens that make you sick. It's possible the COVID-19 pandemic could trigger change the way the Great Smog did. It could be a paradigm shift for indoor air. In fact, 39 scientists are calling for just that in a report published in the journal Science earlier this month. Miller and her CU Boulder colleague and aerosol expert Jose Luis Jimenez are two of those researchers. So our society has been very successful at removing pathogens from water or from food. And they are very, you know, complex, sophisticated systems that work very, very well. We've come to expect our drinking water to be clean and the food we buy at the grocery store to be safe. But Jimenez says we're not there yet with indoor air. Something our society just hasn't done it. Jimenez and others say it's time for that change. The group of researchers wants to see standards for indoor air quality that include airborne pathogens and that are enforced. But that doesn't have to be complicated or even expensive can be as simple as plugging in a $100 CO2 detector and, if need be, opening a window. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You'll find this and other stories at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. With summer closing in, the number of people trying to camp in state and national parks across Colorado has soared. And in an effort to protect natural resources from the wave of visitors, the Forest Service, park officials, and law enforcement are closing some heavily used campsites. They're also creating more restrictions on various sites across the state. Colorado Sun reporter Jason Blevins recently wrote about the restrictions and what backcountry campers can expect in the coming months. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Henry. So I want to get into the campground closures and the restrictions in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about the sheer volume of campers and folks we're seeing here in Colorado. What can you tell us about the numbers we're seeing so far in 2021? They are in excess of the numbers we saw in 2020, which was very, very high. Say, for example, last summer and fall, the Arapaho-Roosevelt National Forest and Pawnee grasslands, about 1.5 million acres, they saw a 200% increase in traffic in the backcountry. So this year has sort of set them up with new management type plans. And we're seeing that kind of growth continuing into 2021, right? Like everybody bought a camper. Everyone's got all this backcountry gear. Last year, they maybe rekindled their um, you know, appreciation for camping and being in the woods. 
So all signs are pointing to an equally busy summer this year compared to what we saw last year. How does this compare to last year? So last year we saw, say, the South Platte Ranger District of the Pike National Forest really crack down because they were seeing some heavy, heavy use so close to the Front Range. This year we're seeing the Arapaho Roosevelt um, National Forest kind of crack down, shut down some popular dispersed camping areas. And and then we've got, you know, places all over, really Crested Butte, Chafee County. They're starting to really look at the numbers and how they can better manage the resource um, in this surge. And usually that is boiling down to some sort of removal of campsites, requiring reservations, designated camping in specific areas. You know, it's sort of the new normal is what, what we're seeing in Colorado. This all sounds like grim news for those who are looking to go camping, but, uh, it, you know, it sounds like there's some reasons backing up these camp closures and restrictions. Help us understand the kind of impact that the surge is having on sites like this. Say, for example, the Arapaho Roosevelt National Forest, they are temporarily suspending camping in five different areas. And it's like, you know, the Vasquez and Little Vasquez Creek up above Winter Park. It's right on a creek that supplies that town's water supply. And in the last year, they saw hundreds of campsites sort of spring up along this creek. Maxwell Falls near Evergreen, kind of a residential area. Hundreds of cars overflow that area every Saturday. Really popular hike. Rainbow Lakes Road near Nederland has just been, you know, there's dozens of new campsites pop up every year. And also Boulder County's, you know, area on South St. Brain Creek, um, you know, over by Gross Reservoir. They've just been seeing lots of people packing into these sites and really threatening water supplies, watersheds, and, and with the wildfire danger so high, people are concerned about, you know, some of these campers maybe having illegal fires that could become a wildfire. Lots of good concerns. And it's maybe not totally bad news for campers because now, you know, if you plan, you can actually be guaranteed a campsite instead of going out and looking for, you know, two hours to find a place to throw your tent. You know, now you can say, let's go camping on this date. Let's make a reservation. And boom, you're confirmed. And for the folks who still like to be spontaneous, there still is dispersed camping available in certain parts of the state, right? Oh, sure. All over. I mean, you know, it's just a matter of kind of knowing where to look. But the Forest Service and land managers are really trying to pick the areas where there's been excessive traffic and trying to do what they can with these temporary closures and maybe, you know, limiting the numbers and allowing people to make reservations for these campsites just to, just to control the impacts a little bit. What have you heard from officials about how long they think these restrictions might be in place? I mean, we got a full summer ahead of us. Colorado is still experiencing some freak growth in terms of population. It sounds like these restrictions might be here for a while. Yeah, most of the closures, you know, the Rapper Roosevelt was very careful to say these are temporary. But, you know, it's very likely that after this year, we'll see, you know, maybe at least extended closures for more than a year. Some of their camping closures are going to last for two years, some for five years, some for only one year. So these are temporary so far, and we'll see how this year goes before they make a sort of longer term permanent decisions. You know, we're just looking at the new normal. Like this is the way Colorado is going to be. Like you will have to make reservations. The idea of, you know, four o'clock on a Friday, loading up the rig and heading into the woods and expecting to camp where you always camped, that might be a thing of the past, you know. Jason Blevins is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. Jason, thanks as always for talking with us. Yeah, thanks, Henry.
Rocky Mountain National Park is trying out a new timed entry system for the upcoming summer season. It's similar to how the park operated last summer under pandemic restrictions. Superintendent Darla Seidels says annual visitation has spiked over the past decade by 44 percent, and timed entry could become a permanent fix to massive overcrowding. I think we all can acknowledge that the 1990 Colorado is, is unfortunately gone. And so it's incumbent for us to manage the park for the new reality of our current and future generation. Public comment on the timed entry system and other longer-term planning efforts centered around crowd management is open through mid-July on the National Park Service website. Visitors to Rocky will need to reserve a slot ahead of time beginning this Friday. A new film from Iceland, The County, pits a solitary farm woman against a tyrannical agricultural cooperative. There are vague echoes of a David and Goliath struggle, but KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, says the film is richer and more nuanced than that cliché, and this microcosm has remarkable power. The first time you see Inga, Arndis Hron, Egil's daughter, she's in her barn where she's chained up a still unborn calf to pull it out of its mother. Inga strains and leans backward. The cow complains. The calf's forelegs and head appear, while Inga keeps up all the pressure she can muster. When the calf is finally out, Inga falls on her back, exhausted. This is Inga's incredibly hard life. She drives the cows into the barn, feeds them, puts them in stanchions, and sets up the electric milkers. At night, she falls into bed, exhausted. Her husband, Rainier, slides in beside her. They exchange a bit of tenderness and go to sleep. Their farm lies in the north of Iceland. Their two grown children live a ways away in the south. Soon, Rainier's dead, possibly by suicide. Inga stares down a deep ravine at the toppled semi-truck he drove for the local agricultural co-op. And that's the problem. The co-op has become too powerful and corrupt. It no longer helps the farmers, it overcharges them, and blacklists members who buy food or supplies or equipment from Reykjavik, the capital. Inga tells the co-op director she knows he forced her husband to rat out anyone who strayed from the co-op's control. Rainer did it because otherwise the co-op would have forced the couple off the farm. Writer-director Grimor Halkonarsson has real feeling for the plight of Iceland's small farmers. His 2015 film Rams won a major prize at the Cannes Film Festival for its picture of two feuding brothers who lose both of their sheep herds and farms to the neurological disease Scrapey. In the county, no physical disease destroys Inga's farm. It's the slow erosion caused by a social force, the co-op. Inga's up for the fight. It's there in her vulnerable but fierce look. She takes to Facebook and calls the co-op the co-op mafia. It's like the infamous company stores of American mining towns, where miners were dragged down into paralyzing debt so they could never free themselves from their horrific jobs. And with a burst of furious imagination, Inga attacks the co-op building itself. For the most part, Icelandic movies do not present the world with little rays of sunshine. The county takes place in claustrophobic interiors. The insides of the hospital, where Inga views Rainier's body, or the co-op offices, feel sterile and overwhelmed by blunt right angles, the walls, doors, and rectangular windows. The outdoors is terrifying in another way. 
The county shows magnificent open spaces that seem to stretch forever, with mountains in the backgrounds. But the immense expanses are also treeless and harsh, and filmed under heavy gray skies. In a way, Inga and the farmers who side with her are trapped between two awesome forces, the power of impossible-to-control nature and the indoor co-op with its power to take someone's precious farm. Both are arbitrary, and both are out of Inga's control. Iceland carries a long tradition of independence and democracy. The Icelandic parliament, called the Althing, has been in continuous existence since the year 930, longer than any other parliament in the world. When unhappy co-op members meet, their postures and manners show that they know instinctively how democracy should work, and in the county you feel Inga's outrage at the attack on independence and fairness. The county's a mighty film. It takes place on an island with few people and a vast landscape, like Wyoming, although it's less than half the size of Wyoming, with roughly 60% of Wyoming's population. Yet director Grimor Halkonerson has created a picture that captures fundamental problems of our time. A solitary woman fighting for her modest life against domineering powers. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 